This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. When I suffered the most, I was ashamed because I disappointed my kids. We'd be out in public and I was about to take them to dinner and a movie and suddenly I'd look at my wife and I'd say, you gotta take me home. Why, dad, why? And I couldn't explain it. I felt like I was in a tunnel. I felt like the world, the roof, the sky was falling, which made no sense at all. And then there was the overwhelming sense of shame that a pastor who's supposed to be spiritually well put together would suffer this kind of mental illness. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hey there, you're listening to Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron. In this episode, we start a series that Pastor Jeff says is a very difficult one for him. It's brought up some memories and personal struggles for him personally. It's a series on anxiety, depression, and Jesus. We're gonna start in Psalm 88, which begins with, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night, I cry out to you. Let's begin this message with Pastor Jeff and find out how to thrive with anxiety, depression, and Jesus. Before we get into Psalm 88, I want to say something specifically to the next generation because they are suffering immensely from what we has been termed mental illness of various sorts. So we're asking why, doctors, physicians are asking why, medical centers are asking why, this seems to be a pandemic right now. There seems to be a pandemic of anxiety, of depression, even bipolarism and beyond, because mental illness comes in different phases, different effects, and different degrees. But can I say something, first of all, I, I want you to know as the younger generation, pep rallies will never sustain you. Now, you know, you've heard me define pep rallies. It's the raw, raw part of your faith. And there's nothing wrong with the raw, raw part. The raw, raw part's good. It can lift your spirits. As long as you understand that they are temporary fixes, they never cure ultimately the disease. I know most of this next generation because of the entertainment industry are drawn to these type of things. And if you find an entertaining, uh, inspiring, captivating speaker, I'm drawn to them as well. There's nothing wrong with them now. Please don't misunderstand. I like to hear a passionate, extraordinary, on-fire type of speaker. But that will not sustain you over the long haul, alone. You need information. You need truth. You need something that's going to internally transform you, not just make you feel a certain spiritual high in the moment. My son has a friend that says, I'll tell you the kind of preacher I like. I like the kind of preacher that really gets me going. And that's good. So do I. Everyone does. But sooner or later, you got to move off the milk and get into the meat. The Hebrew writer says exactly that. This applies specifically to a series that we're doing on mental illness. Most of you, if you know my story, I have a history of anxiety disorder. In fact, preparing for this series I found to be somewhat of a kickstarter again, to start the fire, a trigger. I remember, and I reflected back in the three and a half years, there was a period I could not leave my house. 
I was shamed, ashamed because I disappointed my kids. We'd be out in public and I was about to take them to dinner and a movie and suddenly I'd look at my wife and I'd say, you gotta take me home. Why, dad, why? And I couldn't explain it. I felt like I was in a tunnel. I felt like the world, the roof, the sky was falling, which made no sense at all. And then there was the overwhelming sense of shame that a pastor who's supposed to be spiritually well put together would suffer this kind of mental illness. Can I tell you that when I suffered the most, I was at home and could not leave home and I read all the time. And two sources, I read my Bible all the time, which turned out to be better than I ever thought it could be. And second, I read everything I could about mental illness. I think I have read thousands upon thousands of articles by doctors in journals, in medical journals, by Mayo Clinic, Vanderbilt Hospital, on and on it goes. And let me tell you, I could cite all those, but let me tell you what I've learned in the first part of this series. Number one, the medical world simply does not know what causes mental illness. They have theories they do not know. The second thing I can tell you with certainty is only Jesus can heal you. Only Jesus can heal you. You say, what about medicine? I'm a fan of medicine to a degree because it masks the symptoms. You think, well, why would you want to mask something? Because when you are suffering from mental disability, you need something to stop the wheels from turning so that you can start to think logically and practically and put things into your life that will ultimately defeat the disease, not just treat the symptoms. Medicine can help you function, but medicine, as long as you know, will never ultimately heal you. When I was ill, people would come up to me and say things, suck it up, Pastor Jeff, you can do it. You know, you got Jesus in you. Just try harder. Trust Jesus more. You can do it. You can overcome. When the outlook is bad, try the uplook. You know, the victory is in you. It's already there. All of that is true. God has a plan for your life. All of that is true. I get that. But what people don't understand is when you're in mental illness, you're not processing properly. You're not thinking properly. And all these things are true, but they're just band-aids. They're still treating the symptoms rather than the disease. I just sat in my doctor's office two weeks ago because I've had to switch doctors because we've switched care providers. And my doctor wanted to talk to me about my history. And he noticed I was on Zoloft. And he said, tell me a little bit about this. And we talked for like an hour. I've never had a doctor spend that much time. Who knows? But I can tell you, I sat across the desk from this guy who's been in his uh, specific practice for over 45 years well-respected. And he looked at me and simply said, we don't know what causes mental illness. We just know how to treat it. And by treat it, he means we can control the symptoms, not cure the disease. Now, I'm not anti-medicine. In fact, I'm a fan of modern medicine. I want to be careful here, but I'm not a doctor. I'm not a fan of the modern, uh, modern pharmaceutical companies and their greed. I'm not a, a fan of that to get all Americans hooked on some kind of medication to solve everything. Got a problem, take a pill. I'm not a fan of that. But that doesn't mean that all medicine is bad. James Simpson, the discoverer of chloroform, was a dedicated follower of Jesus and couldn't stand to see women who were having babies be in such pain. James Simpson, chloroform. Jonas Salk, who created a vaccine for polio, saved many, many lives. But here's what you need to know in this first message. Mental illness is real. You can't just speak it away. We know that it is related somehow to past trauma, but not all the time to past trauma. But it's not the past trauma that causes mental illness. We're now learning that it's your response to past trauma because everybody has trauma of some sort. 
There's not a soul on this earth that's not carrying some burden. So how you respond to it has a lot to do with the chemical makeup of serotonin levels in your head, in your brain. There is a physical impact from a spiritual life. There's no doubt about that. We're going to talk about that later in the series. Medicine and counseling are good things, but here's the thing. Mental illness, and we're not going to like this, is the pathway to greatness. Mental illness is the pathway to greatness, even though it's going to be the darkest season of your life. Now, I, I want to take you to, yes, I said that, the darkest season of your life. I want to take you to Psalm 88. Here is a psalm. I want to read the words to you first. He says, the writer, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. Verse two, may my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. You have put me in the lowest pit in the darkest depths. Verse seven, your wrath lies heavy on me. You've overwhelmed me with all your waves. Verse eight, you have taken me from my closest friends and you have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show wonders to the dead? Do, you, do the, their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and have been despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me my friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. I believe, and I'm going to show you as this develops, we are reading the song of someone who had suffered mental illness, most probably depression, from the time of their youth. Why do I believe that? I will unveil that as we go. But first of all, this is a psalm. And prayers in the psalm, with the exception of two, now there's hundreds of psalms, with the exception of two psalms, all the psalms start in despair and end with hope, except for two. Psalm 39 and Psalm 88. Psalm 39 ends by the writer saying, God, turn your face away from me in this last moment of my life so I can have at least one moment of peace before I die. And Psalm 88 ends with one Hebrew word. You can't see it in the English, but there's one Hebrew word. And the meaning is this, darkness, that's my real friend. Now, the question is, why did God put this Psalm in the Bible? Why is it here? And well, as well as Psalm 39. I want to tell you why. And in those four reasons, I'm going to tell you to write them down. I believe we discover something that is priceless. Number one, here's why God put it in. To show you that mental illness can last for a long time. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night, I cry out to you. And then he says he's losing all of his friends. He's facing death. So whatever he's facing is pretty debilitating. And he's angry at God. He says, God, if I'm dead, I can't praise your name. Do the dead praise your name? I mean, can I be righteous if I'm incapacitated like this? And then he says in verse 15, from my youth, I've suffered and been close to death. So he suffered this from a very young age, most of his life. He's outwardly afflicted, but worse yet, he feels inwardly abandoned. See, this is the point. If you feel outwardly afflicted, but you feel that God is close and with you, you can do it. But he says, darkness is the only thing by my side. 
And that's the trouble with mental. You, you can face outer darkness if inwardly you're experiencing his love. But when you're in these positions, you don't feel, whether it's objectively true or not, is not the point. You don't feel the closeness of God, which means this. You can be trying and praying and attending church and reading scripture and doing all the right things, and you can still feel darkness for a long time. Is that depressing? Yes, but it's also encouraging, and here's why. Because as a young student of the Bible, the thing that impressed me most about the Psalms was honesty, because it's real. Do you remember that great movie, Princess Bride, and the great line where he says, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. The Bible is real Christianity. It's not trying to sell you something. It's realistic. It tells you that pep rallies and motivational speeches just won't do it. By somebody telling you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, it's not going to heal you. And sometimes the reality is life is about extended times of darkness, even when you're doing things right. And I remain truly concerned by some of the voices that the next generation is attracted to. It's almost like now that you're a Christian, they're being told nothing bad can happen. Christ is in you and you will rise above and there's no darkness that it will ever come upon you. You're righteous and because Christ is in you, he's righteous. Therefore, God sees you as righteous. There'll be no more darkness. And I always like to remind them, oh yeah, so you've heard of Jesus. Pretty good guy, right? He's pretty righteous. They killed him. The point is, Jesus was clear in John 16, 33, that in this world we have trouble. And not just physical, but mental and spiritual battles. And the reason I labor this point is half the pain in our lives comes from false expectations. Job's friends, do you know the story of Job? Do you remember what their answer was to his suffering? They basically said, Job, you've obviously sinned against God. God is getting you. You deserve this. And Job's response finally was, you guys are a bunch of windbags. You're, you're not helping me. And then Eliphaz the Temanite comes and says, an, an amazing passage, Eliphaz the Temanite, who should know better, comes to Job and says, there's a spirit that glided past my face and the hair on my head stood on end. It stopped, but I couldn't tell what it was. A form stood before my very eyes and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal man be more righteous than God? And what? How does that help Job? I remember when my mentor came to my alma mater. And so I had my mentor and my favorite theology professor in conversation and they shared a similar story. And I think I've shared this before, just quickly. Uh, when you're in seminary and you take a final exam, you take essays or you write pages and pages. So you're given five questions at the end of the year exam and you get to choose three. And each question will probably take 10 written pages, handwritten pages to answer the question in full. And so if you haven't studied, most students will participate in what is called padding. In other words, they know they don't know any of the answers to the question. So they'll just write, 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 and write 10 pages of nothingness just so hoping that somewhere along all this fluff, they will hint at the truth and they'll get some credit for the exam. And both my mentor and both my theology professor said that one time a student turned in a paper like that and my theology professor wrote on the front of the paper, this is not right, this is not even wrong. I like that. This is not right, this is not even wrong. What you've written doesn't even rise to the integrity of error because you've simply said nothing. It makes no sense. That's what happens Often, when we're experiencing something that our friends do not understand, they mean well, but what they say makes no sense 
and gives no encouragement and doesn't do anything for the healing. It might put a band-aid on the symptom, but the disease is far, far deep. So I go back to the question, why does God put this in the Bible? Why does God put a Psalm, Psalm 88 in the Bible, where there, there seems to be no hope? First, to show you that mental illness can last a long time. Second, to show you the grace of God. Some of the man's prayer in Psalm 88 is not really a prayer, but an interrogation. Look at the sarcasm again in verse 10 and 11. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? In other words, he says, how can I tell the world about all your wonders if I'm dead? I want to do so much for you, God. I want to spread the joy of your name. How can I do that? How can I declare your name if I'm D-E-A-D, dead? Maybe not physically dead, but spiritually and mentally decapitated. The head, the thinking's been taken off of my spiritual and physical life. And I can't process things the way I want to process, which means I can't declare your glories. And then verse 15 again, he says, I've experienced this from my youth. He says, basically, God, you've never been with me. All of my life I've suffered. And you look at it and you think, that seems disrespectful, doesn't it? It almost seems blasphemous because this man is interpreting all of his life through his present circumstances. And he ends the, the psalm by saying, even darkness is a better friend to me than you, God, because at least darkness never leaves me. Notice the sarcasm. Remember I said that Psalm 39 also ends this way when the writer says, turn your face away from me so that I can have a little peace before I die. One commentator says this, about Psalm 88 and Psalm 39. The very presence of these prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. God knows how men speak when they're desperate. Now you think about that. God placed these Psalms here. God does not say, you know, there's no way I'm going to let this song or Psalm make it into Psalms. I don't want people to think they can talk to me this way, but God doesn't say that. He says, put it in. Because he identifies with those prayers. God is saying, I love this man, even though he's not getting it right, I fully understand his depression. Even though he can't see the whole picture, I see his frustration and therefore I'm gonna extend my grace and mercy. God says to those who experience mental illness, and this is not just theory to me, this is real because this is the case in my own life. God says to us in the midst of this, that I am your God, not because you get up every day and put on a happy face, not because you say and do everything right, not because you never talk back, not because you never lash out or get frustrated with me. I am your God because I love you and I am a God of grace. And we should find that liberating, that as we go through this series, all the things we're about to learn, we should never forget that. So why did God place it in the Bible? To show you that mental illness can last a long time. Two, to show you the grace of God during the dark seasons of your days. And three, to show you that mental illness is where you become a person of righteousness. This is hard to fathom. It's hard to accept. And when somebody told me this in the middle of it, I didn't appreciate hearing it. But in retrospect, after the fact, it's true. God put this here to show you that mental illness is where you become a person of greatness. The writer of Psalm 88, which again, we're going to unveil just in a moment. He should not be saying things he's saying, but at least he's saying them to God. You know, one day, when I was in the middle of my anxiety, I finally got the courage to leave the house. I had to come to the office because I was preaching again that weekend. Through that season, I continued to preach and continued to pray and continued to learn. One day I got to the office and I just, my brain, it was in that cloud again. It was in that, 
That place, I don't know where you go. It's like Paul, whether you're in the body or out of the body, I don't know. The only difference was I wasn't caught up in the third heaven. I felt like I was caught up in the third hell. This was terrible. And I couldn't think, I couldn't process. You know what I did? I'm gonna make a confession. I got my iPad out and I watched Forrest Gump. I don't know why. I just thought, maybe I need a good laugh. The problem with Forrest Gump, you get some laughs, but you also get some serious dialogue. And I came to the scene where Lieutenant Dan who had lost both his legs in battle, who hated Forrest because Forrest got the Medal of Honor and he felt Forrest was an idiot. And here Lieutenant Dan coming from a long series of family members who were war heroes, got nothing, lost both his legs. Forrest carried him out of the jungle and Lieutenant Dan hated him for it. But not only that, he hated himself, became addicted to sex, drugs, alcohol. He was destroying his life. But he heard that Forrest Gump has a boat and is shrimping in Alabama. And he promised Forrest that if you ever own your own boat, I'm gonna come and be your first mate, holding true to his word. He comes, he becomes the first mate, Forrest Gump, shrimping entity. But they're not, they're not catching any shrimp. And one day a horrible storm comes and all the boats come in except one. And the only reason Forrest Gump remained is because Lieutenant Dan determined. He was determined to die that day. So he climbs on top of the mast with this storm that had the potential to destroy them, that destroyed every boat that had gone into harbor. And Lieutenant Dan has it out with God. And in his frustration, he says to God, you'll never sink this boat. Is that all you got, God, you son of a gun? Is that all you have? You call this a storm? And he yells, it's time for a showdown between you and me, God, one-on-one. -on -one. Here I am, come get me. You'll never sink this boat. And he screams and yells at God. And then in the next scene, after the storm subsides, here comes Lieutenant Dan, the atheist, who's been shouting at God all night long. And Forrest says, he never said so, but I think he made his peace with God. When I saw that, believe it or not, God uses, if God can use a donkey, he can use Forrest Gump. I remember on my couch thinking, I gotta get this out. And I let God have it. I'm a pastor. I'm your servant. I've been serving you since I was 21 years old. I have given everything to you. I went to Africa for you. I went to New Zealand for you. And here you are, you've got me in this darkness and you won't answer? The healing that took place that day, probably more than any medicine, at least I was still talking to God and God did not strike me down and smite me because he's a God of grace and mercy. And I began to learn he was doing something. You know, what is, what is Satan's accusation against Job? Have you read the book of Job? Satan says to God, Job's relationship with you is transactional. Of course he serves you because you keep blessing him. Of course he does the right thing because you keep giving him more and more stuff. You withhold that stuff. You stop blessing him. You wound him internally and externally. He'll curse you. He'll curse the day he was born and he'll curse you. Give him inner and outer darkness and he will not serve you. That passage spoke to me because I realized that much of my relationship with God at that point in my life was transactional that I had used people in the past as a means to my end, but now I'm using God. Did I really go to New Zealand and to Africa for God or did I go for myself?
Had I been serving him for me or for him? And you have to ask the same question. Is Satan right about us? About me? About you? We all begin with that attitude because we come to God to get something and that's natural. We want to be healed. We want to be saved. Those are good things. But if you never grow out of that, emotionally, you become a roller coaster because it'll be contingent on what you think God is doing for you at the present time. But God in our lives is trying to move us out of egocentrism where everything's about us into theocentrism that everything's about God, which inevitably produces endurance, stability, peace, and a centralized joy. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. Will you resign and say, oh God, I get it. I'm going to serve you. And I want you to build in me the man or the woman that you need or want me to become. That's hard to hear when you're in the middle of it because there are many causes, but there's only one attitude that brings victory. It's to totally yield the entire illness over to God. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.